You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm excited to welcome Christopher Paolini back to the show with me today. One of my all-time favorite guests uh, to have on the show. Last time when we talked, The Fork, The Witch, and The Worm had just come out, and we were talking about his return to the world of Aragon and all that that encompassed. And you can find that episode back in the archives. But today, we're here to talk about his brand new sci-fi book that's published with Tor. It's called To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. And what an amazingly gorgeous book this is. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Christopher. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to be talking with you again. I remember actually, um, along with enjoying our conversation last year, being uh, rather frustrated at the time because I was so close to finishing To Sleep in a Sea of Stars and uh, sending it off to the publisher and all that, but I couldn't I couldn't talk about it, you know? Right. And after spending, uh, I mean, over seven years working on it, and I originally thought of the idea back in 2006, 2007, that gets a bit frustrating. Well, I remember the first time you were on the show, which was about four years ago, we talked about this sci-fi book that you had in the works and um, you you talked about kind of the hope um, that you had in this book and and mm. uh, what uh, you know what it was doing for you creatively and uh, to to kind of stretch your your creative legs in a new way and then last year when the new book came out um, you know we we talked again and and I think a lot of us did pick up on some of that frustration that you were so close to finishing. Um, And then, you know, having known those tangential um, elements of the story, then I, I read in the back of to sleep in a sea of stars. And you've got this great afterward that you write where you really kind of bear it all and talk about the story behind the writing of this book. And uh, I, I was really surprised at just how, um, you know, honest you were about it and and the struggles that you had gone through. Can you kind of bring some people up to speed on kind of the history of this book, where it came from and and why a fantasy author that made such an amazing and uh, a huge splash in the fantasy world then wanted to write the science fiction epic? Well, that that that's quite a question right there. Uh, yeah, it might it's, take me questions on you know. Yeah, it might take me a few minutes to answer that. Uh, so the short version of how this book came to be and why I wanted to write it is that uh, I grew up reading as much science fiction as fantasy. I love science fiction, and uh, you know, sci-fi fantasy is often sort of put under the umbrella term of speculative fiction, which is appropriate because yeah. both genres allow you as the writer and, of course, the audience to speculate about things that don't exist, whether that's, you know, a world or civilization or physics or magic or what have you. Now, there are no hard and fast rules about what you have to do in fantasy or what you have to do in science fiction. But that said, I'm going to stereotype horribly. Um, And I actually I got into the conversation (laughs) discussing this with Brandon Sanderson, and he disagreed with me slightly. So Take this with a grain of salt. This is my own personal opinion, which is that taken very broadly, fantasy is often a genre, a nostalgic genre. It's often a backwards looking genre that, you know, draws from traditional myths and legends and and all of that. Whereas science fiction, again, stereotyping very broadly, is often a forward looking genre, which speculates about what could be, what might be. Uh, perhaps even what we hope will be, sometimes what we fear will be. That said, again, the big caveat is you can write fantasy that's set in the future. You can write fantasy that is modern day. Um, you know, Sanderson's own uh, Stormlight Archives series is fantasy essentially written as science fiction. It's on a different planet with different, you know, flora and fauna and all of that. So, but 
that was my impression as a kid, you know, so I enjoy the genres for different reasons. I love fantasy for that, that old feeling, you know, that, that connection to the past and the sense of awe and wonder that I got from it, especially when, when you have a writer like Tolkien and there are others, of course, who managed to use essentially mythic magic. That is magic that is not uh, explained in a scientific manner. It's not mechanistic magic. There's, there's, I'm sure you've heard the quote from Arthur C. Clarke, which is, you know, any sufficiently advanced form of technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right. And there's a corollary to that, which I wish I had invented. But the corollary is any sufficiently explained piece of magic is indistinguishable from science or technology. And the writers who don't always explain their magic, but do understand how it works, can often, if done well, create this amazing emotional experience. It's, it's dream logic in a way. Uh, so I, I love science. I love fantasy for that reason. And then science fiction I love because it, it takes you, it can take you into the future. It can allow you to explore the universe in ways we can't physically do at the moment. And I, I'm totally in love with that idea. I think the universe is absolutely amazing. I find the fact of existence to be somewhat staggering. And I firmly believe that if humanity is to survive in some form or another, that we ultimately are going to have to expand beyond this planet and move out into the solar system and possibly out of the solar system. You know, it is a mathematical certainty that at some point the sun is going to expand and so Either we accept that and accept our inevitable demise, or we do what life always does, and we fight for our survival. And we expand, we spread, we explore. Um, you know, and whether or not there's other intelligent life in the galaxy, and even if there is, it might be too far away for us to ever encounter it. If there isn't other life out there, but even if there is and it's too far away, you know, I almost wonder if we have a moral responsibility to help spread life out into the universe because without life what's the point of everything you know i mean it's it's the old you know if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to to see it uh, or hear it does it does it matter but in this case there are no trees it's bare rocks and you know empty space uh, so all of which is to say when i finished uh, uh inheritance which was the fourth and final book in the main inheritance cycle i finished that in 2011 and uh, 2000, and then deep into 2012, I was still touring for the book. And I wanted to write something else. I wanted to write sci-fi because it meant as much to me as fantasy. And I wanted to write an adult novel. And I had originally gotten an idea for To Sleep back in 2006, 2007, but I had to put it on the back burner because I was working on um, my third book at the time. After the touring for Inheritance, I, I knew I needed, needed a break. You know, I've been working on the inheritance cycle from 1998 until 2011, 2012. You know, that's a huge amount of time in anyone's life. And I needed a break. So I took about six months off from writing, and then I did some short stories. I did a screenplay that didn't work, which is obligatory if you're a novelist. Just, like, <laughs> just as it's obligatory for screenwriters to, you know, write novels that don't work. And then... Uh, I, I even wrote a short prequel novel in 2013 that did not work, so I shelved that also. And then I spent an entire year doing research for not just to sleep in a sea of stars, but the entire sci-fi universe that I was trying to create. And that sci-fi universe is called the Fractalverse. And the Fractalverse includes the far future, the distant past, and the real world, the modern day. So Earth exists, all of Earth's history exists in the Fractalverse, you know, the Milky Way, the galaxy, uh, the, the universe, all of that's in the Fractalverse. And the reason I, but of course it is slightly, you know, different because it's my take on reality. But the reason I wanted to do this was to, was based off my experience in writing my fantasy series, uh, which is that I, put all of these years and all of the all of this thought and energy into creating this fantasy world and it just got richer and richer and richer as it went along and it it continued to suggest story ideas for me and the thing is that level of work is just not worth it if for one novel in my opinion unless that one novel is going to be the only thing you really write in your life so i wanted to 
give myself a setting where I could tell multiple stories um, and and stories that weren't fantasy. So basically anything that wasn't explicitly fantasy was going to be in the fractal verse. And that's why it was worth it to me to spend an entire year teaching myself physics, learning about how spaceships would work in space in a realistic fashion, you know, how warfare might work in space, the, the, you know, where computer technology might be going, where biotechnology would be going. And of course I had to make assumptions, you know, there's no way to accurately predict any of this. I had to make a heck of a lot of assumptions, uh, but it was fun. And the biggest thing in there was uh, figuring out my faster than light technology. I warned you this was going to be a long answer, by the way. Um, <laughs> right ahead. So the biggest thing was my faster than light technology because uh, according to physics as we know it, and this always goes back to Einstein, with all of my research, I kept like trying to find a solution for faster than light travel. And I kept, it always kept coming back to Einstein. It was like, and this would work and this would work, except that Einstein says it doesn't. Um, but the biggest problem with faster than light travel is that if you travel faster than light, the physics say you now have a time machine. You can now either send a signal back into t in back in time, or you can physically travel back in time and kill your own grandfather or some nonsense like that. And I have nothing against time travel as a you know storytelling device. I just didn't want all of my spaceships to also be time machines. That right. was not the story I wanted to tell. So I set myself the challenge of a finding. Finding a, a, a technology, a system of faster-than-light travel that hadn't been used by some other sci-fi franchise. B, finding a faster-than-light travel that didn't allow for time travel. And C, that didn't contradict physics as we know it. I was okay with bending a few things, but I didn't want to outright, outright contradict stuff or break it. And that was ridiculous ridiculously hard um you know because the, the thing is is i didn't want to contradict physics as we know it because i'm including the real world in my universe and that kind of gives you certain limits um so i ended up for me i ended up finding uh, a rocket engineer by the name of greg Mahalik, who dabbles in theoretical physics in his spare time along with some of his acquaintances and uh they have come up with a theory uh which Greg was kind enough to sort of hold my hand and walk me through the theory. And that theory formed the basis for the FTL technology. Um, and once I had all of that, that's when I finally started writing to sleep. And for anyone who's, who's listening, rest assured, the book is not a technical manual. I wasn't going into this trying to dump a ton of math or difficult information on the readers. This is all background stuff. This is the stuff I needed to know in order to write the book. Uh, and if anyone is interested in the technical information, it, there's a paper in the back of the book that has it, but it's not in the story. Uh, and I wouldn't recommend, you know, necessarily a starting author or anyone going and spending a year doing research like this. Um, but for me, since this was a larger setting, it was worth it. Um, and then the writing of the book itself was rather difficult as I got off on the wrong foot with the story and. Uh, I finished the first draft beginning of 2016, so that would be, let's see, I started end of 2013-ish, so 14, 15, 16, so that was about three years of writing, uh, and the book is extremely long. I mean, it's 308,000 words long, and then, uh, unfortunately, that first draft didn't work. You know, my early reader, my sister, was very kind enough to <laughs> tell me that uh, she was absolutely right. Uh, and it was incredibly difficult. And I spent most of 2017 basically rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, as I say in my afterward, trying to salvage uh, the work I had done, but it wasn't fixing the deeper issues in the story. And um, my editor finally pointed that out to me at the end of 2017. And, you know, it was difficult. It was, I'd put so much into the book. Uh, I could have walked away from it. You know, the thought of rewriting or redoing it was incredibly painful. Uh, but there's a thing called the sunk cost fallacy, which I'm sure lots of listeners are familiar with, which is just because you've spent a lot of energy and time working on something doesn't mean that you should continue to do that if it's not working. Well, actually, that's not exactly what the fallacy is, but close enough. Um, the fallacy is you you keep putting more energy and time in something that isn't working just because you've put that time and energy into it in the past. Uh, and I was aware that I could easily have fallen in that same trap. Uh, so I, before deciding to walk away from the book, though, I took a week and a half 
And I wrote 200 pages by hand in a week and a half of, of notes, just ripping apart every aspect of the story, characters, technology, uh, the, the structure of the story itself. And that actually allowed me to find something that I felt confident was going to work. And then that uh, 2018 and 2019 were uh, writing that um, frantically to catch up. <laughs> um, and, and for anyone who's read the book or looked at the book, everything after like the first quarter of the second section of the book, everything after that was basically written from scratch. Uh, and in, in addition to all of that, I also did The Fork, the Witch, and the Worm, um, middle of 2018, and then it was published beginning of 2019. So it's been a long journey, and I've been very, very, very busy. <laughs> so questions that 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 popped up during your answer there. Um, you're, you're absolutely right that the book doesn't read like um, a technical manual on how to travel faster than light and what the implications of that would be. Um, because, it, and we do all appreciate the homework that you did so that you could wrap your head around kind of the mechanisms of the story. But without characters that we care about, none of that matters. Um, so yeah. what did you do to, uh, where did the characters come from? And and tell us a little bit about their story in in the midst of all of this future tech that you created. I was, it was actually a very similar process. Uh, I wasn't reach, reaching out to experts uh, for character help, but I, while I was developing the, the universe and the technology, I was also doing work with the characters. And that work was writing, you know, hundreds of pages of hand notes, handwritten notes, uh, just working out who these people were. Uh, I firmly believe that if you can... If you can tell me what makes your character laugh, what makes your character cry, what makes them sad, and what uh, sort of key moments they had during their upbringing that they remember and that continues to affect their behavior, if you, and also what they want, what they want and what they need, which are two different things. Um, as an example, your character might want to go to the store and, and, I don't know, buy a new computer, but what they need is to reconcile with their mother, as an example. So, but if you know those things, I firmly believe you have a pretty good grasp on who a character is. So I already, I, you know, Kira, my main character, was a bit of a challenge uh, because I wasn't sure at first how, how adult to go with the story. And I kind of split the difference in the first draft, um, and it was perhaps a little... Uh, a little in between with her character as to how adult she actually was. Um, but that's, that's also partly because I was still growing up while going through all of this. Uh, there are a lot of things in my life I put off till later because I was so caught up in writing, editing, and promoting Inheritance Cycle. And after that, I needed to do, I needed to do quite a bit of living, you know, on my own and sure. just, you know, just, just to have a life outside of that cycle. Um, it really was kind of like training for the Olympics or something. It was like, okay, you publish one book immediately go back into, back into training, back into writing, burrow down into it, um, deal with the publicity at the same time and hurry up and get that next book done. Cause you got a deadline in a year and a half. The novel factory online is software for the serious writer with features like notes that are automatically organized. That means no more drowning in piles of paper notes, or spending hours organizing digital folder structures. The Novel Factory offers clear, obvious structures for noting down information about plot, characters, locations, and everything else relating to your novel. Innovative features like the Roadmap take you from concept to finished novel. The Roadmap is an optional step-by-step -step guide to writing a novel that takes you from the premise to final manuscript and beyond. It draws on tried-and-true, tested theory that lies behind the majority of best-selling novels and blockbuster movies. Access your writing anywhere. The web version of the Novel Factory can be accessed anywhere you have internet. So you can write your novel on the train to work, while walking the dog, or climbing a mountain. Just log in and all your drafts and notes will be at your fingertips. Go to novel-writer.com to see how this powerful software can unleash your creative side. Use code HANK2020 for 20% off. That's the Novel Factory.
authors. I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Christopher, you um, you also changed uh, publishers for this book, uh, and uh, Tor publishes the new book, and it's absolutely gorgeous. We were talking about that before we got started. Um, the the hardback, uh, you know, has these great um the the logo on the cover beneath the dust jacket and uh the printing on the spine all of that um you know the 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 packaging is very pleasant and uh gorgeous but uh, you know tor is known for kind of being the cornerstone of uh science fiction fantasy and uh you know that kind of hold down the genre there what was it like working with a new publisher a new editorial staff and uh, you know, kind of getting a, a change of scenery there, did that it enhance or change your creative process at all? It was it was very different. <clears throat> um, so since To Sleep in a Sea of Stars is an adult novel, and in right. the publishing world, that simply means that your main character is over 18. If your main character is under 18, you are a young adult. You have a young adult novel. The content of the story almost doesn't matter. So since it was an adult novel, it needed to find a different place than uh, where I was published at Random House, which was Alfred A. Knopf in the children's division. Alfred A. Knopf is an imprint of Random House. And I worked uh, with my editor and publicist there at Knopf, I mean, all the way up until last year when I published The Fork, the Witch, and the Worm. I mean, so from to the end of 2002 when i when i started working with them all the way up until the beginning of last year I and mean, that's a huge huge chunk of my life sure and uh, i'm will most definitely be working with them in the future with future books also but because i started working with my editor and that whole team when i was geez uh when i was 17 uh the dynamic was very different uh going to tour uh, and and the thing was with with Tor, I would have been very happy to, you know, publish the book wherever we found the best home for it. And Tor happened to be that. So coming to Tor as an adult, uh, it was a very different experience, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, it was still a shock to work with a different editor, uh, two different editors actually. Uh, Will and Davy um, worked on the book at Tor, and the book is different because of that. Um, but I think it's the best version that we could produce, and I'm certainly happy with how it turned out. And as you said, the package of the book is 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 gorgeous. We have uh, these like galaxy fractal end papers. There are seven maps throughout the book. Uh, I did about I want to say three of them, and then my assistant Emanuela did the other did the other four. So it's a it's a gorgeous piece of um. I don't want to say ephemera. What would you say? It's a gorgeous object. And that was what I was yeah. shooting for. I, 
I love books as objects, and I really wanted people to feel like they were picking up something special uh, with this book, mainly because I, I I love the story so much, and I love the what I was the universe, and and I really cared about what I was trying to do so much that I wanted the the packaging to reflect that as much as possible. Well, the book as ob- as an object is uh, is definitely a thing. Um, I, I read lots of books in Kindle edition, um, and it, it, it's super handy. I go to sleep every night reading my Kindle and, and catching up on something. I listen to a ton of audiobooks now. I, I'm even listening to the audiobook of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars right now, 35 hours long, by the way, uh, just to give you folks... Uh, uh, kind of a, a a clue as to the 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 length of this book, um, and and there are lots of books that I thoroughly enjoy in audio, um, but there's something there are certain books that you just want a physical copy for your shelf, mm-hmm. um, even if you listen to the audio or you know read the Kindle edition. There's something about holding it and and having it as as a piece for your shelf. Why do you think we put such value? on books or, or certain books? What, what is it that that makes us want to collect this piece of ephemera or, or however you want to uh, explain it? I mean, part of it is whether or not you care about what is in the book. I mean, if you really care about the subject material, it almost doesn't matter what the book looks like itself. You know, there are people who collect crappy paperbacks because they're the only edition of some, right. you know, really important or awesome novel that was published years and years ago. So I think I think the content is part of it. But then on top of that, uh, you know, I, I think humans as a group, we we have an appreciation for beautiful things, things that are aesthetically pleasing, however you want to define that. And uh, I mean, I have certainly seen books where, you know, I've looked at it and I've gone, wow, this is just gorgeous. I mean, maybe the story is great inside and or maybe I've already read it, but this is just gorgeous as an object. Uh, you know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but they have to you, you have to say that because we do judge a book by its cover. We absolutely uh, do. Yeah. And I was I was a little nervous because I, I really lucked out with the covers for the inheritance cycle. I mean, they're they're pretty. I don't know if iconic is really the right word, but they, they stand out in the fantasy genre. And I don't really see anything else like them on the shelves. Uh, and I think most people would recognize them if they saw them. But after an experience like that, to get another cover <laughs> and try to hold it to the same standard <laughs> is is a tall order. Um, but fortunately, I think we ended up with a beautiful cover. And the cover was the design of it was really dictated by the fact that the, the title of the book is so long. Yeah. And that it became more of a textual thing versus a, you know <clears throat> illustration. Well, speaking of the the inheritance cycle books and the iconic covers, I think we can say that. Um, you know, if you look across the bookstore, you can you can tell what the inheritance cycle books are. You, you mm. can if you can't read the text of the title, you, you can see them from several rows over and you go, oh, the, there's Palini section over there. I'm I'm going to go grab one of those. <laughs> um, it, you know, so you you have become part of the fantasy establishment, um, you know, with a with an iconic series like the inheritance cycle. Um, you know, you, you definitely set anchor there. Now you come out with this epic science fiction book and, um, you know, you alluded to it earlier that, uh, you know, uh, science fiction and fantasy are very close cousins. And, and I, I loved your example of, you know, one being, um, a look to the past and the other being a look to the future. Um, that was a, a horrible, um, paraphrase by the way. Um, but I, I understand what you're saying, and I, and I do agree with you that that those are some distinctions in science fiction and fantasy. But as a writer, um, did you ever feel the tug of you know knowing that you are known as a fantasy writer who is now going to um, you know write something very forward looking? Um, mm. Was there ever a conflict there in you? No, um, maybe it's just my inner ambition because I want to write lots of different types of stories and I have never been a fan of uh, doing what people tell me to do, which is probably why it was a good thing I wasn't uh, in the public school system. Uh, I I don't think I would have been a peaceful student, let's put it that way. So I, 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 and also, you know, with the inheritance cycle, it's done. 
it's it's finished. It's been finished for quite a while at this point. And no matter whatever, no matter what else I do in my life, I can always look back on it and say, you know what, I did that and it's finished. And people, a lot of people enjoyed it. That gives me the freedom mentally um, and, and in other ways to, to basically experiment and do what makes me happy as a storyteller and, and hopefully my audience also. But uh, it, in some ways, it's this, this safety net. It's again, I, I mean, I could <laughs> I mean, I don't have to write. I could not write for the rest of my life if that if that was something that appealed to me. But it doesn't appeal to me. I love stories. I love telling stories. And that's that's what I want want to do with my life. Not that you are, and I'm I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but um, do you feel the freedom to go back and write another fantasy series if the uh, if the spirit moved you so? Yes, I'm not sure if I ever really want to write a true series again, simply because after the experience with the inheritance cycle, I, I'm a really highly aware of how much time that would take, you know, the sort of commitment. And there are so many different types of stories I want to tell that I, I'm just not sure if I have it in me. And again, I could do it. I'm just not sure if I want to do a series. But yes, I there's lots of fantasy I want to write. Some of it is in the world of Aragon, you know, the fabled book five that um, I've been talking about with fans <laughs> for a while, but also some adult fantasy and some other stuff. Uh, and, and I and I want to write some shorter books, quite honestly, uh, you know, to sleep in a sea of stars. I've been using this example is like only 10,000 words shorter than the entire first Percy Jackson series combined. And it's one book. Now, that was that's that's <laughs> because I wanted to tell a complete story in one volume with a beginning, a middle and an end. It's not a series. But yeah, I would really like to write some shorter books at this point. I mean, I could <laughs> I'm not actually a slow writer. I'm actually a decently fast writer. It's just uh, with between the rewriting and the size of the book, it just takes time. Right. Um, Christopher, you have mentioned a couple of times in, in our talking here uh, the difference in um, a, a book for uh, young adult readers versus an adult book. Um, and you did a great job of explaining the difference in, you know, the 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 protagonist and and who whose eyes were seeing the story through. Are there other differences in the tone of the writing or uh, certain boundaries that you're allowed to push or or at least kind of walk out to in the storytelling between a young adult and adult fiction? I think the only boundaries are the are ones that would be self-imposed. I mean, you can find a lot of self, excuse me, a lot of YA fiction that deals with really rough, difficult topics. And a lot of those books actually get lauded uh, for being, you know, gritty and realistic and, and all of that. So, you know, if you want to write a YA book full of rape and murder, go for it. Uh, I mean, heck, they're YA books set in the Holocaust. So right. there's no real limitation. Uh, personally for me, I always kept in mind with the inheritance cycle that, especially after the first book was published that, you know, I did have younger readers and for that reason, I don't have my characters, you know, perhaps swearing or behaving the way they might otherwise. And the, and the thing is, is that I wasn't trying to write YA when I started, I was simply trying to write the best version of that particular story. And that's the approach I take to all of my books. You know, I wasn't, yeah, even though I was aware I was write, uh, writing an adult novel with To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, my goal was, again, just to write the best version of that particular story. And, you know, I wasn't consciously gauging it or, or, or trying, aiming it to say, OK, it has to be gritty and, and adult and everyone has to use adult language. It's more like, no, you know, what does the situation draw from these characters? What do, what, what are what do they want? What are they what are they going to do? And and what do I want to do with the story? You told us um, about that that moment where you had um, to where you realized you were rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic mm. and and you had to stop and reassess uh, all of your work and then, you know, come up with a new plan. And, and you talk about it in the back of the book and, and you told us here um, this 200 pages of handwritten notes. What were you what were you looking for? And what did you hope to accomplish that, you know, obviously you did accomplish, but what did you go into that situation looking for? Ooh. So one of the hardest parts of rewriting is getting your brain 
to look at established elements in a fresh light. Uh, this is also very similar to, so I'm a, I'm a big puzzle fan, and I don't mean like uh, regular picture puzzles. I really like three-dimensional metal puzzles and wood puzzles where, you know, all those, you have all these interlocking pieces and they're very difficult, at least they can be very difficult to solve. Um, but I find them incredibly fun and um, they're kind of like brain traps for me. If you put one of these puzzles in my hands, I will not move until I've solved it. <laughs> so <laughs> I even, I, I which... Which is why, I'm sorry, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but which is why when I was a kid um, or teenager, my parents got me uh, this uh, wooden puzzle with 51 pieces, inter all interlocking pieces. It's a Japanese puzzle. It looks like two, two pyramids stuck together base to base, made of 51 pieces. And I did not move while I was working on that. I mean, that shut me up for a while. Um, but I did get to the point where I could take this puzzle apart and put it together blindfolded. So I thought that was pretty good. Um, but the, the reason I bring up puzzles like that is that what ends up happening is you think you can't solve it. You think you can't solve the puzzles and, and you think you've seen everything there is to see with the physical arrangement of the pieces. And unless you solve it by blind luck, the only way you can solve it is by reassessing and reevaluating your assumptions. And it's like you get this little twist in your brain and you get a new perspective on things. It's, it's the coolest thing. I love the experience, which is probably why I love these puzzles. Rewriting and revisions are exactly the same thing. You have all these built up assumptions, what the characters are, what, what, what has to happen. And trying to look at them from a new angle is really hard. Like it causes mental fatigue and mental distress. It's one of the toughest things I think you can do in writing. So when I sat down to do all those, make all those handwritten notes, I was essentially trying to force myself to think about the story as if I were writing it from scratch. It was like blank slate. I know that I'm trying to accomplish X, Y, Z with this idea, the idea being my inciting incident and also the final scene of the book. Everything else is up for grabs. Nothing is sacred. So with those with those two scenes and with my desire to capture a certain feeling and a couple of theme thematic elements, what do I actually need to serve those themes? Who are my characters? How does it tie into those themes? Uh, what choices are they making that that cause them difficulties that demonstrate character that um, lead to further growth and change as character specifically for my main character, Kira? Um, you know, and how does this all tie in? What, what are the possibilities? And it really is just a series of me asking myself questions and then trying to answer them as honestly as possible. And then following the consequences of those decisions to their logical conclusion. So if I might make an assumption, I might say, okay, I'm not going to do what I did in this scene or the sequence, you know, because it doesn't seem to make sense for the thematic elements or it's not leading to further growth of the story or the character. So if instead I send my characters off to a different star system and they find X, Y, Z, what would the impl implications of that be? And then working that out. You mentioned earlier the fractal verse and this, uh, that you wanted to create a, a canvas, if, if you will, that, that would, um, uh, that would make more than just this one story possible. Mm. Um, and uh, so when we meet Kira and when this book opens, um, we are in a, a, a human future um, where we have uh, branched out into the universe. But the idea of alien life is something that has been stumbled upon, but not really encountered. Um, well, uh, one one caveat with that okay uh, sentient alien life there there yes. definitely my my in the future there's I, and i think this might actually be the case uh there's been quite a bit of plant and animal life for definition certain definitions of that life found on certain planets but no no sentient life yes and and thank you for clearing that up um what do we in this book we we really see some sea changes that um um, that happen uh, with Kira and with kind of the trajectory for human exploration coming up. Um, what do you, um, do you have an overarching plan 
for where I know that you've kind of worked out the technology and things like that to to create this world. But do you see stories past this one? Yes, uh, there are a couple of stories that I have in mind that are tie in quite closely with the events and the characters of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. And then there are some larger sort of plans that I have, our overarching goals for the Fractalverse uh, that go into the, into the far future. And then there are quite a few other stories that I have in mind that are, some of them are modern day uh, or near future. And those, excuse me, those don't tie in quite as tightly um, with To Sleep, but they do tie into similar themes, similar ideas. And, and there are some larger overarching story things that will continue to grow, you know, story to story, book to book, even if only in small ways. Within the science fiction genre, there are some sub genre designations, uh, you know, military science fiction, mm. uh, space opera, uh, space adventure, even, you know, space wizards, if we want to get into Star Wars. <laughs> um, do you think about those sorts of designations and and do those things uh, change story elements as you're thinking about it? I mean, maybe. Uh, it's kind of interesting you bring this up because when I was doing my virtual book tour for To Sleep, uh, I had some events with, I had an event with Tad Williams and I had an event with uh, Chuck Wendig, uh, among others. And both of them brought up the designation space opera. And I, I almost wonder if it's a generational thing uh, or just, separate experience because both of them seem to view space opera as being almost a bit pejorative um as a genre description that's crazy whereas to me. whereas to me it's more like a label that says oh hey you're gonna have a fun awesome adventure here exactly. um, <laughs> so which is why i have been calling uh, to sleep a space opera and to me that just means a, a story of epic scale uh one that I mean, the opera part perhaps is not quite as applicable in the sense that it's not really massively concerned with a whole bunch of interpersonal drama. Um, but it's this epic that takes you across the stars and it's, you know, larger than life in a lot of ways. And that to me screams space opera. Uh, some of the other stories that uh, tie into to sleep, I would definitely classify as military sci-fi. Uh, so I do think about that, but it doesn't, but the thing is, it doesn't really shape what I want to do with a story. It's like, okay, it's military sci-fi. Who cares? I'm still going to tell the story I want to tell. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, you can let other people apply the labels after the fact. Uh, Christopher, in the beginning of our conversation, you, you made that illustration about the difference in your eyes between science fiction and fantasy. And you said that science fiction is, or, or can be. Um, kind of what our hopes for the future uh, mm. might be or our fears for the future. And you kind of threw that caveat in there. Um, how do you see the story that you're telling in To Sleep in a Sea of Stars? Uh, do, do you see that as a look at the future and what you hope for or things that you think, you know, hope that we'll be careful with? To Sleep is ultimately an optimistic story. I'm an, op an optimistic writer. I I don't like stories that, well, actually, let me rephrase that. <clears throat> to provide some context, I personally like, as, an, as a consumer, stories with a, with a touch of optimism to them. But then also as an author, as a writer, I have had the really amazing experience over the years of hearing from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people who, in one way or another, were deeply touched by the inheritance cycle. And often found, they found that the books helped them through some difficult part of their lives. And that's really humbling to hear. And it's, it's the sort of thing that, I mean, I think every author would hope for, that your work would touch people in some really profound or deep way. And because of that, it really makes me wary of ever putting anything out into the world that is ultimately cynical, depressing, or unhelpful, you know? Because uh, I think about a lot of those letters I've gotten, and it makes me think, well, you know, if, if instead of the book I wrote, they had read something that was really depressing and cynical, and it had had the opposite effect on them, <clears throat> you know, what, what would have happened in their life? What would have happened to them? Now, and in books do, writing does have that sort of power, uh, amazingly enough. So 
no, I, I, you'll never catch me writing grimdark fantasy or grimdark science fiction. And, you know, I, I love old school Star Trek and this optimism it had. And that's not to, and that's not to downplay the challenges we face as a species. You know, I mean, this planet right now, we've got a lot of difficult things going on. I'm sure everyone would acknowledge that. But that doesn't mean there is a lot of awesome stuff going on also. And if you all if all you do is focus on the bad things, if all you do is look at the world and see what's wrong, then I, 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 to me, it's, it's a very, A, depressing experience, and, and B, it's never going to give you a sense of hope or energy for the future. I mean, yeah, things are hard at times, but guess what? They've always been hard, and they probably always will be hard in one way or another. Doesn't mean things can't get better. I mean, things have gotten a lot better over the past few hundred years. So, uh, yeah. I, I feel very strongly about that, and I would definitely hope that anyone who reads to sleep or any of my other books, that it leaves you with a sense of hope and optimism for the future. Other feelings yeah. and emotions. Uh, we've talked in the past about your your home base in Paradise Valley, Montana, and mm. and what you know that that home that you have there uh, has done for your creativity and how you draw from that. D did you need to get some different uh, you know, perspective of view um, in writing to sleep in a sea of stars? Did you need to, to go to a different place and get some different scenery? Did that affect you at all? I didn't need to get different scenery for the writing. I did get quite a bit of different scenery while working on to sleep simply for my own mental health and personal life, if you will. Um, I actually finished the first draft of the book uh, while splitting a winter between Edinburgh, Scotland, and Barcelona, Spain, which was a really awesome experience. I've, you know, I've lived and worked uh, in quite a few places around the world, but I keep coming back to Montana because my family's here and it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just think of the mountains from Lord of the Rings and you'll have a good idea of what it looks like here. Uh, but, you know, Self-care is a big part of being a professional writer because you spend a lot of time alone thinking about what could be and what might be. And a lot of times it's not very pleasant stuff to think about, uh, given what you're doing to your characters. So finding ways to get out of your own head and spend time with other people is incredibly important. Uh, and that's why prior to the current year, I was traveling and going to conventions and sometimes spending time in different parts of the world to do a little bit of writing. But the locations themselves were not necessarily huge sources of inspiration. You know, I, I had a very clear idea of what I was trying to write for to sleep, and that didn't change a massive amount just because I was writing in Barcelona versus Montana. I will say that uh, Montana and growing up homeschooled in rural Montana is, is actually excellent preparation for living through a pandemic so that's also worked out pretty well on that front it's like oh we're not into town anymore and we're avoiding other people it's like well okay that's just the way i grew up i guess i'll get back to the writing oddly enough um mountainous montana and rural mississippi have a lot in common um <laughs> you know, that's yeah let's go same experience here. Yeah, and that's and that's not to downplay, you know, the difficulties a lot of people are facing. In this of course, situation. I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Um, I just, of course, personally found it a little amusing that um, quarantine and self isolation is basically the way I grew up for living. So it's like going back to that. Right. Well, and and anywhere we can find to to take a moment, and have a laugh, let's do it. Um, you know, yeah. we, we feel for people, but let's let let's not take ourselves too seriously um christopher i i noticed something in the acknowledgments of the book and then i remembered i think i saw something on twitter a while back are you no longer um the the most eligible bachelor in science fiction and fantasy uh no i i am i am no longer an eligible bachelor i actually got got married that's amazing congratulations Thank you. Uh, I was getting to the point where I was thinking it wasn't going to happen, but it did. And I'm, I feel incredibly lucky. Well, congratulations. That's, uh, that's the best news that, that we've been able to share in a while. <laughs> um, the, the new book to sleep in a sea of stars is available everywhere. Now that you buy books, uh, like we mentioned, it's out in hardcover, uh, audiobook or Kindle edition. However you like to consume books, you can find it. 
We'll put links to it in the show notes to make it easy for people to find. Uh, Christopher, where can people find you online if they want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you and your whole team uh, provide? Well, there's my website, of course, which is paulini.net. And then uh, I am on Twitter at at Paolini, and I'm on Instagram uh, and Facebook and all over the place. So I'm very easy to find. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the content because <clears throat> for for context with uh, the inheritance cycle, the, the, a lot of the rights with the inheritance cycle are actually owned by the movie studio. There are a lot of things I wanted to do with Aragon and the other books and, and the world of Aragon that I couldn't do, but that's not the case with to sleep in a sea of stars. And so uh, my team and I are actually doing a lot of things that I've, I've wanted to get off the ground, wanted to do in the past, and we're having a lot of fun with it. So we have official merch for To Sleep in a Sea of Stars and the Fractal Verse. We have pins. Uh, we have pendants made by Badali Jewelry, which are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, we have art prints. Uh, we're doing other things, you know, uh, like you mentioned the audiobook. Uh, the audiobook was read by the amazing voice actress Jennifer Hale, who actually has the Guinness World Record for being the most prolific female voice actor in the world, uh, at least in English. And she's done voices for everything from, you know, Halo to Mass Effect. She was the female lead in Mass Effect. Uh, Lord of the Rings, she was the voice of Galadriel in the video games. Uh, she's done the voice of Cinderella for Disney for a long time. Uh, tons and tons of projects. She even was uh, did uncredited work as the voice of the dragon Saphira in the Aragon video game. And I managed to get her to do the audiobook of To Sleep, uh, her first audiobook ever. And I think she absolutely knocked it out of the park. Um, but she is also an excellent, excellent uh, musician. And the idea came up and we did this. Uh, she and her uh, producing writing partner, uh, Todd Herfindale, uh, actually did a song in universe for to sleep in a sea of stars and the song is called sea of stars and you can go search for it on spotify and youtube and uh, apple music everywhere uh, sea of stars jennifer hale and it's a really i love the song because it really captures a lot of what i was trying to evoke with the end of the book and also it kind of captures a lot of the feel of what it was like to write this book over so many years. Um, so we're going to be releasing a lot more music with her uh, over the next couple of months. We're doing a number of songs with her all in universe for to sleep and the fractal verse. And uh, I'm currently commissioning a whole whack load of uh, professional Hollywood concept art for the fractal verse, which I'm going to be sharing with the fans uh, in the actually fairly near future here. Love and it. Uh, we're going to be doing lots of other cool projects um, also in the relatively near future. Uh, and as God announced, uh, we, we have a movie deal for the book also. Yes. Um, in Any idea what, what's going to be moving on that? So my sister and I are writing the screenplay, and we're also signed on as executive producers for the project. And honestly, the only real hang-up is going to be the time it takes to write the screenplay. And that's what we're working on at the moment. Uh, it's so on one on one hand, it's like the book is done, but I'm not done with the story because now I have to reimagine it one more time. <laughs> but uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I love film. I always wanted to go into film. That was sort of my goal originally. Uh, and after the experience with the Aragon film, I very much want to have my fingers in the pot and try to make sure that this adaptation stays true to the core of what I think is special about this story. Um, and on top of that, I also wrote a short, well, actually a fairly long sequel novella for To Sleep, and that's done. And I've also been revising uh, the short prequel novel I wrote back in 2013, and I've been very happy with the revisions, and that should be done in a month or two. So, nice. yeah, there's a lot going on. A lot. Well, good luck condensing this 900-page book to... <laughs> Um, to, to feature film length, um, I would love to see this turn into a TV series. Any, any hopes uh, on that front? Well, at the moment, we're shooting for feature film. Uh, gotcha. But if we have some flexibility with the contract and we're all taking the approach with this, uh, which is part of why I really wanted to work with this producing team. Uh, we're all taking the, the, the approach that if 
that we're doing what's best for the story. And so if during the writing process, it becomes clear that fitting this into a single film is simply not feasible, not without losing too much of the original story, then we'll look at either doing two films, we'll look at doing a mini series. Um, and I, I do have a series idea for a television series following the book, which would follow the the crew of the wallfish um, after the events of To Sleep in the Sea of Stars. But one thing at a time, uh, one thing at a time. There's only so much time during the day, and I can only write so much at, at one time. So uh, time management, as I've learned is really a crucial skill as an adult. And when launching a big book these days, there is so much going on. It's almost like you have to run a small multimedia company uh, right. when launching a book. So time management has become a crucial skill. But it's 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 really fun because I spent a number of years sort of out in the wilderness, if you will, writing and not being able to do a whole lot because you know you can't do anything if you don't have a product, you don't have a book. And now that the book is finally out and people can read it uh, and uh, hopefully enjoy it, this is the fun part. This is the awesome part. Um, And I'm very much looking forward to writing new stuff. And people will not have to wait another seven years for a new book from me. Uh, I, you know, the writing of To Sleep was difficult for a number of reasons. That's not the case with future projects. Uh, The writing has gone super, super well and very quickly with other stuff. So I would love to have a book come out every if not every year, at least every year and a half. That would make me very happy. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Uh, we look forward to everything that you put out, Christopher. Um, like I said, there's links to uh, to the book, to your website, uh, Twitter, all the places where people can connect with you in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Christopher, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you and to get a glimpse into what's going on in your world. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Oh, my pleasure. This was an absolute delight. Do you want to get paid to write stories? Do you enjoy collaborating with other talented storytellers? Do you want to work completely remotely and set your own hours? Relay Publishing is looking for writers and editors to work on fiction projects across a range of genres, from thrillers to sci-fi, fantasy, and romance. The Relay process is extremely collaborative, in the same vein as a TV show's writer's room. If you're a story geek, then you'll be on a great team. There are seven ghostwriting positions and ten editing positions currently available please go to www.recruitment.relaypub.com. That's www.recruitment.relaypub.com for more information on how to apply. Join a great storytelling team today. What Death Taught Tarrant by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found the story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. Invasion Day, the first book in the They Came for Blood series by Scott Moon. David Osage is a dangerous man with a complicated past, but these days he's just trying to keep his head down, driving big rigs. One night he saddles himself with a hitchhiker, a nuisance who's more than she seemed, and that's when everything changes. No one was ready for an alien invasion. Death is raining from the sky and the only questions left is do you run, fight, or submit? 
Rapper David Osage and his family answering is as easy as giving the alien invaders the finger. Grab book one, Invasion Day, in the They Came for Blood series, and then follow it up with book two, Resistance Day, and book three, Victory Day. Available at Amazon.com.